And Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Imagine before you a courtroom, a courtroom that is eerily silent as everyone is waiting for the judge to enter. The jury has been through the ringer, answering particular questions that would determine whether or not they are fit to serve. The lawyers, they're sitting at their respective tables with their clients. They have all their prepared briefs and statements and pieces of evidence. There's even a stenographer in the corner, and she's sitting in raptured silence with her fingers hovering over the keys ready to observe and write down everything that she witnesses. And then the bailiff enters the room and orders everyone to rise, and they do so when the judge enters the room. The judge is dressed in all black, and he makes his way to a highly raised chair there at the other end of the courtroom. He says, hey, what's on the docket today? And the clerk promptly carries over a stack of all the cases the judge is going to have to see that day. And as he's reading over the list of cases, he looks over the edge of his glasses and he sees the plaintiff sitting at her table. She's sitting there in her Sunday best, trying desperately to keep her smile as sincere as possible. And the judge says, wait a minute. Weren't you in here last week? She unfolds her hands in her laps and very calmly replies, indeed I was, Your Honor, but I'm still looking for justice. With that, the judge orders the bailiff to come over, grab her by her wrists, and get her out of his courtroom. Now, the next day, each of the common characters are there. They're going through their repetitive routines until the judge ascends to his perch yet again. And he is bewildered because as he looks over his glasses for a second time, he sees the same woman in the same spot as the day before. He says, ma'am. How many times will I have to kick you out of my courtroom before you learn your lesson? She says, Your Honor, as long as it takes to get my justice. For weeks, they go through this new pattern every single morning. And eventually, it starts to wear on the judge. At first, he relished in the commands to the bailiff to remove the woman by any means necessary. But every day she came back, she looked a little worse than she did the day before. Now, to be very clear, the judge had no pity for this woman, none whatsoever. He knew her case. He knew there was nothing to be done. And yet every night he lay awake in his bed, troubled by her bringing her troubles to his courtroom. Every morning his black robe, it felt a little bit heavier than it did the day before. And then he started to discover that he had an ulcer that was starting to grow, all from the stress that this woman was putting in his life. And then one night... One night he had an idea. He realized that if he just gave her what she wanted, she would stop bothering him. He could get on with his judgment business. So the next day when he saw her in court, he gave her the justice she was looking for. The end. That's Jesus' whole story for us today. Jesus says that that is what God is like. Not like the widow who persistently goes looking for justice. Not like the bailiff dutifully following orders. Not like the stenographer observing and recording every minute detail. Jesus says God is like the unjust judge. 
Jesus here breaks all the conventions, particularly when it comes to storytelling, or dare I say preaching, because unlike your esteemed pastor this morning, Jesus didn't have the benefit of going to a seminary in which he would have been taught that if you want to talk about how good God is, you need to give your people good examples of good people so they know how good God is. But Jesus, he doesn't do that. Instead, he hands us a story in which God, as the unjust judge, is supposed to sound good. How about you? I don't envy the judge in the story, particularly when you consider the fact that the judge has to take on two things that we think have nothing to do with each other. The business of grace and the business of judgment. And the dance of grace and judgment is the dance the church is always doing, and it's so difficult. We want to be able to hold these things together at the same time, even though they seem completely different. We want to be gracious toward all people. But we also don't want people getting away with everything under the sun. We want to tell people that God loves them no matter what, but we also want to make sure that everyone knows there are certain things that if they do it, God doesn't love that. And so we know how the story is supposed to go. After all, the judge is in the judgment business. He should be just in his administering of the law. But in the end of Jesus' story, the judge breaks all the rules. And he puts himself out of the judging business altogether. And the judge is bothered not by any normal character under the law, but Jesus specifically tells us that it's a widow looking for justice. And to our contemporary ears, we can imagine perhaps the plight of the widow. But in the time of Jesus, to be a widow was to have no hope in the world whatsoever. Because during Jesus' life, for a woman to lose her husband meant that she would become a complete and total loser in every stretch of the word. No social standing, no economic prosperity, no property, period. And yet this widow that Jesus tells us about refuses to accept how dead she really is. And she shows up at the courthouse over and over and over again looking for justice. The hope of discovering some kind of justice in the wealth of her injustice. And she's totally dead. Dead at least according to the values of the world. And she knows she's dead. She knows deep in her bones that she has no hope in the world. She knows the judge will never, ever change his mind. But she also knows that she has no other choice than to ask for something she will never, ever receive. And for reasons that appear very strange and suspect to us, the judge decides to change his mind. We would hope that the judge would be moved by pity or perhaps hope or even by faith. But Jesus plainly declares that none of those things have anything to do with it. The judge changes his mind only because it will make things easier for the judge. The judge is willing to be unjust just so he can have some peace of mind. And then Jesus ends by saying, hey, all of you listening to my story, listen to what the unjust judge says. Jesus is saying here in ways both strange and captivating that God is willing to be bad. That God is willing to let God's justice be blind for no other reason than God is tired of dealing with us. And Jesus spins this tale and we are left with the bewildering knowledge that God is content to fix all of our mess even while we're stuck in pursuits of moral and spiritual and financial purity. This whole parable that Deirdre read for us today can be summed up in one sentence. While we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for the ungodly. To me, there are few sentences in Scripture as unnerving and as beautiful as that sentence. It is beautiful because it is true. But it is unnerving because when we say Christ died for the ungodly, the people we're talking about are us. We might like to imagine that God is waiting around hoping to dispense a little bit of perfection like manna from heaven if we just offer up the right prayer or we get the right amount of good works in our life. But Jesus' story about the unjust judge, it screams the contrary. It's as if Jesus is saying, do you think it makes the least bit of difference to God whether or not you are right? Whether or not you are just? Whether or not it is true? Truly, I tell you, God isn't looking for the right or the good or the true or the beautiful. God is looking for the lost. And all of you are lost, whether you think you're lost or not. We call it good news. We call it good news because like the parable of the lost sheep, God will never, ever, ever give up on us. The problem isn't that God will never give up on us. The problem is we won't admit that we're lost. Jesus then jumps to the moral of the story with a declaration that God delights in being merciful whether we deserve it or not. And more than that, Jesus says that God will be merciful on God's people very soon. So Jesus tells the story as the cross and Golgotha are getting clearer and clearer on the horizon. He knows he's going to die. He also knows that the cross is where God's mercy is made most manifest. It's just like the unjust judge. God hung up the ledger keeping forever when Jesus hung on the cross. The cross is God as the unjust judge declaring a totally ridiculous verdict of forgiveness over a whole bunch of unrepentant losers like the widow, like me, dare I say like you. It is the stuff of wonder and awe that God chose to drop dead to give all of us a break. Like the widow's verdict, God was tired of the world turning to self-righteous competitions and self-righteous judgments, thinking that those things would make the world a better place. And while watching the world tear itself apart, God destroyed God's self instead of letting us destroy ourselves. This cross, the thing we adorn our sanctuaries with, we get tattooed on our wrists, or we wear around our necks, or we put on our bumper stickers, the cross is a sign to all of us and to the world that there is no angry judge waiting to dispense a guilty verdict on all who come into his courtroom. St. Paul says there is therefore no condemnation because there is no longer a condemner. God hung up the black robe God threw away the gavel the day his son hung on the cross. No one but an unjust judge could have ruled in our favor when we didn't deserve it. No one but a crazy God like ours could have been merciful to throw a party and invite the very people we wouldn't. And yet Jesus isn't done yet. He ends with this lingering, awful rhetorical question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The implied answer much to our disappointment and embarrassment, is no. That when the Son of Man comes, he will not find faith on the earth. And this story prevents us from believing that any of us is just enough for the judge, that any of us have faith in us, because we all struggle with faith. Not because we don't know whether to believe God exists or not, but because we can't believe that God would do for us what God did for us. 
Our faith trembles in the recognition that in that sentence, the us is actually us. That God did this for us. Because when we look at the Rolodex of our sins, when we imagine the ledger of our good deeds against our bad, all of us can admit, hopefully, that we don't deserve it. And yet we worship a crucified God. A God who wins by losing. A God who lives by dying. And that's a hard thing to have faith in. Because we are part of a world that refuses to let go of our insatiable desire to win at all costs. And that is the heart of the parable. It's the confounding nature of God's work. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little, t- a little tired of having to preach the parables. I thought this was a great idea a year ago. But I was going to preach a parable every single week from Easter all the way through August. But doing this has been hard for me. Perhaps it's been hard for you to hear this every week. The parables are challenging because Jesus' story, all of them, they run counter to everything we've been told since the time we were babies. We call the good news good, but more often than not, we preach it and receive it as bad news. You know, I can stand up here every week and I can tell you that God is angry with your behavior. I can proclaim that God is so good that none of us are ever going to get close to God. I could spend all my time convincing you that you've got to get your acts together to make God happy. I could even tell you that you don't get to go to heaven unless you put more money in your offering every week. But the thing that we almost never do, almost never, is tell the truth. That God cares not one bit for our guilt. God doesn't care at all about our good deeds. God doesn't even care about our tithes. We can't rejoice in the ridiculous good news that God has gotten rid of all the oppressive godly requirements we think are a part of our ticket out of death. We can't talk about those things because they either sound too good or they sound too crazy. But here's the truth. God is crazy. Absolutely crazy. God is crazy because God stays on the cross instead of coming down and zapping us until we behave better. God has already given us more than we could ever earn or deserve. And those two things are really unjust when you think about it. They are unjust because God, our God, chooses to be blind to who we really are. And friends, there is no better news than that. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Now, if that didn't ruffle your feathers enough, I'm going to tell you something else that's going to ruffle all your feathers. Some of you, in fact, most of you know that I've um, been participating with a theological podcast the last couple of years. A few buddies and I, Methodist preachers, we thought, hey, let's talk about faith, and we can record it and make it available for other people to listen to. We thought it would be this cool thing that we would do. And every once in a while, we get a theologian to come on the podcast, and they'll talk about their own faith or their own faith journey. And we like to end all of our episodes with the 10 questions from inside the actor's studio. You've all ever heard about this before. There are 10 sort of arbitrary questions to get people to think, what's a profession you've always wanted to try? What's a job you would never want to try? What's your favorite curse word? When they tell you asking theologians their favorite curse word is really fun, because you can see them all way 
should I say it? And they all do. The last question we ask on every episode is this. Since heaven is real, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Since heaven is real, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Nine times out of ten, the answer is the exact same. Well done, good and faithful servant. Which is like the most churchy answer you could possibly have. <laughs> but every once in a while, we'll have somebody in the podcast who gives us a more honest answer about what they hope to hear from God when they arrive at the pearly gates. Now, our last episode, we had Bishop Will Willemar on the podcast. He's a United Methodist bishop. He served for a long time, and he's retired now. And because he's retired, Will can say whatever he wants. There's a freedom that comes in retirement as a pastor because before you retire, you have to be careful about what you say. But when you're retired and you're not worried about the people who show up on Sunday, you can say whatever you want. Over the last couple of years, Will has been adamant and very, very vocal against President Trump. He's written articles in newspapers. He's been on national news. He has spoken very, very publicly against President Trump. And this week, when we ask him what he wants to hear God say when he arrives at the pearly gates, this is what Will said. So you know what I really hope? My truest, deepest hope in the world, this is what I hope I hear from God when I arrive. Hey, Will! I'm so glad you're here! Finally! But I gotta let you know, the Trumps are over here and they want to have a word. <laughs> Do you get it? That's great. I mean, imagine it reversed. Imagine it six years ago when it's some other pastor who says, oh, I hate President Obama, I hate everything he's done, I hate everything he said, and then that person saying the thing they hope to hear is, hey, we're so happy you're in heaven, but the Obamas want to have a word. Grace is the hope and the belief that no matter how good we are or how bad we are, that none of us are going to make it in on our own, but that God as an unjust judge chooses to be blind to who we really are and say, not that you are guilty, but in my courtroom, you are not guilty. So come in. That's grace. You know what else it is? It's crazy. And it's exactly what we believe. For me, I just want to start acting like it. Because if we really believe what Will said, then the way that we treat each other here in this life will fundamentally change. Because if you believe God has chosen to be blind to you, it means God has chosen to be blind toward everybody. And everybody means everybody. That's what we do here at the scene. You know, the thing I love about the United Methodist Church is it doesn't matter who you are. If you come here on Sunday morning, you get to have some Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're straight out of jail, you murdered somebody, you committed adultery, it if you come to this church and you come up to the table with your hands outstretched, you get Jesus. <coughs> That's crazy. But it's also faith. Would you please bow your hands and pray with me? Lord, you are a crazy God. You've looked at our undeserving and have said, you are not guilty in my eyes. Come in. We've been waiting for you. Help us, O oh Lord, to see that what we believe must shape how we behave. Because if we believe this to be true, it will actually change everything about our lives. So whether we have big sins or little sins, whether we have knee-jerk reactions or are prejudiced, 
misogynists or racists. Knowing what you have done for us forces us and compels us to change. Not so that we can do enough to earn our way in, but when we encounter what you were willing to do in spite of us, it means we start to see ourselves and the world differently. So help us, O Lord, to keep in tension both our undeserving and your grace that makes us deserving. Because while we were sinners, not before, not after, while we were sinners, your son died for us. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.